Josh Gortler is a Holocaust survivor who, with the help from NWPB's classical music host Gigi Yellen, wrote a memoir about his family's survival. His book is Among the Remnants, Josh Gortler's Journey. It reads fast and offers good and interesting insight into a child's perspective of displaced persons camp, understanding the bigger picture of what was happening and discovering you're white and also changing your name to fit in. And why does it feel uncomfortable for some people to say Jew? I'm one of those people. You'll hear from Gigi Yellen later about that. First, Josh Gortler. So, Josh, this podcast, while we talk about your book, it really, I want to have a conversation with you about things that I, I have been missing from some of your interviews and presentations. So while the story of your family and your journey, and there's a lot of personal information in here, I'm really curious at when did you get to the point where you could talk about your experience and the death of friends and families? Yeah, it's interesting that I have did not share my story during my youth, during my college years, during my employment. It was really when my grandchildren started to ask questions. Uh, I started, which is about thirty years ago. Mm. I started to share with them only with the question they would ask, I would answer. And it's interesting that my parents never shared anything with me either. Right. And but they shared with my wife. Oh. So my wife has a more depth from my parents' mouths what's happened than they shared with me. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a very it's to spare me from reliving those moments. Oh yeah. Because you know when I talk to audiences today, when I get finished, I really feel. Uh, drained out because the images uh, are coming back and I, I, you know, I have very difficult time after talking about it. So the first time I officially talked about it was since somebody asked me to do a presentation at the Rainier Beach High School. And if you know the Seattle area, Rainier Beach High School is not your top high school. Academically, it is the bottom of the public school systems in Seattle. Mm. And uh, somehow, one of the history teachers' wife was working at the Klein Gallant with me, and she heard that I was a survivor. She said, how would you like to share your story at the school? And so I put together some old-fashioned slides photographs and slides so I came to the school and I started to speak from a stage just for about 200 kids and it didn't go very fast I just went off the stage and got into the audience and started to share with them and they really got into the discussion Mm. 
And after that day, do you remember how you felt after that presentation? Oh, I, I was wiped out. I was wiped out. First of all, the audience at the beginning, uh, they had, I was told a few years ago, someone else who came, who came to speak to them about the Holocaust. And they basically threw tomatoes at the individual. I mean, that, oh. it, it's a tough school. Yeah. And that was my introduction to talk in front of an audience. Well, I'm comfortable talking in front of audiences. That was not an issue. The issue was the particular audience and the particular topic. Both difficult. <laughs> Both difficult, correct. And their lives, I'm, I'm wondering if their lives and experiences had a lot of similarities going through trauma, difficult times, being told you're something else and other and don't belong. So you resonated with them. Yeah, I did. Josh, when you were young, there wasn't a lot of a talk about therapy or mental health. And in your book, you wrote about a time in the uh, displaced person camp when the celebration of, um, and I hope I say this right, Tishbav? Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av. Uh, but really, no one really wanted to discuss what just happened. Things were too fresh. And how could you celebrate? Let me see. Look in the book here. You know, why celebrate something from so long ago when something very tragic just happened? Right. Tisha B'Av is a day when the two temples in Jerusalem were destroyed on the same day. Tisha means nine, but Av, that's the name, that is the month, the Hebrew month of Av. The Hebrew calendar is totally different than the calendar we use today. Mm. So Jewish holidays in the DP camps, I write about them, is that uh, they wanted to talk about nice things. Mm. They didn't want to talk about the destruction because the destruction of the six million was in front of our eyes. And there's a number of pictures in my book where the classroom, uh, there is a handmade uh, menorah, and it says six million. The whore means do not forget, remember. So any place you went, uh, it was in your eyes, the six million. Yes, and what I got from your book was that you... You, that number was everywhere. They wanted you to remember this. Correct. But at the same time, not talk about it. That's right. Right? No tools. So how did you, I know there was a social worker somewhere in there, but I, I'm so curious how you eventually became a social worker yourself and realized you needed to talk about these things. Um, it's a good question. It's a good question. There were social workers who helped us not through therapy. Oh. The social workers' role were more of assisting to get where you have to get and to do what you have to do. Mm. Uh, there was no real therapy or to discuss the feelings, how do you feel about it, the trauma, none of that. Mm. Because we had to get on with our lives. This post-traumatic stress that today everything is post-traumatic stress, we didn't have that. The term wasn't even, the terminology was not in our lexicon. Mm-hmm. And now in hindsight, do you feel like you had post-traumatic stress? Oh, definitely. <laughs> but we were too busy to be concerned about it. I had to learn how to write and to read. Yeah. I had to learn how to write in a new world. I had to look for a future. You know, uh, there was no time 
to think back. And in the story, Josh, you were three years old when your family left your home and you traveled far, missing the Nazis by sometimes just days. And you were as far as Siberia, then back down. And eventually, after many years, like I think you were 15, you made it to the United States. But it wasn't easy. There were three no. three camps that you stayed at, refugee camp, displaced person camp. And all through that time, you had no formal schooling. Well, but formal schooling started in the DP camps. Oh, in the DP. That's right. Where you learned to write your name. Right. I learned, I learned how in the DP camp, just to give you an idea, I think the leaders of the DP camp looked at the children as the future, the commodity that they have to preserve. Mm. And they immediately started an educational program. And there was quite a bit of discussion, what should that program be like? And how should the program for the children be taught? Now, remember, we were in a DP camp uh, with many, many children from different parts of, the, of Europe. And each one spoke a different language, mm. a German, Hungarian, Romanian, Russian, Polish. Slovakian, done, you know. So it, it was so they decided, the leaders decided that the common language is going to be Hebrew. Ah. And they taught us the alphabet and they taught us how to write and read. And all the secular subjects like arithmetic, uh, geography, uh, basic science, uh, literature was all in Hebrew. That was the common language that they, they had to create. I'm, I'm using the term secular studies, which is based on a model that was used in Eastern Europe for the non-religious schools. They used the Tarbut, it was called, as the secular school, but taught in Hebrew. And then there was the religious school, which was known as the yeshiva, and that's where we were taught the uh, religious studies, mm. the Bible, the, uh, the Talmud, uh, everything else that we learned, it was in Hebrew, but it was not religious school. So in the religious school system, they were only created for the boys, not the girls. Oh. The secular education was boys and girls. Oh. So it was a mess. <laughs> and, I, and then in addition to this, I had to learn the a, B, C, D, E, F. Mm. Now, one goes from left to right, and one goes from right to left. Where am I? It was a, really, my brain was going in 20 miles per second. Now, looking back on that time, was your brain gathering that information, or were you... Oh, I, 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 it, I was like a sponge, ah. soaking up everything. Yeah. And then, Josh, when you came to America, the social worker said that your name, Shia? Shia. Shia. Your name, Shia, wouldn't make it. Yeah, but it's interesting. I write in the book because from my immediate family, there were four of us, and each one was easy to convert. Uh, my father's name was Yosef, became Joe, Joseph. Mm -hmm. Very simple. My mother's name was Estera, Esther. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother's name was Moses, became Morris. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Shia presented the problem. <laughs> First of all, who's going to pronounce it? How do you spell it? So in my document from the DP camp, I have Shia spelled in five different ways. Oh. But that advice from your social worker at that time, it was helpful because of, you know, integration. And um, you mentioned your grandchildren asked questions. Were you open to their questions at first or hesitant to tell them? No, I was not hesitant at all Mm. because, you know, my life was put together. And also, you know, I felt that school of social work was a perfect match for me because in order we went, I went through a, not analysis, but when you go through graduate school in social work, you have to learn a couple of concepts, not to be judgmental mm. and not to enter your own feelings. You have to sort of deal with the feelings of your clients and not to project your feelings to them. And part of my training, it was almost like self-analysis. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this to this person at this given time? And that part of the training you get when you're a social worker, uh, it's all of, almost like self-analysis. Self-analysis. Yeah, and that's a great deal for me uh, to find my roots, so to speak. I'm wondering if that gave you the tools and skills to do self-therapy. Yes. Mm. It was in a way self-therapy, yes. This podcast is brought to you by NWPB Donors. A gift of $5 a month supports the production of this program, and it makes you eligible for NWPB Passport. With Passport, you have access to an on-demand library of more than 1,500 episodes of PBS Favorites. Come to NWPB.org and click on the Donate button at the top. Have any dreams of the displaced persons camp now? I do, and the displaced person camp for me were really an, an awakening. Mm. It was wonderful. Education, food was provided. We were free to do what we wanted to do. We were basically like the kids in Oliver Twist. <laughs> you know, we'd go out to a farm and climb up a tree, pick apples chase after a chicken and catch it and bring it home and kill it and give it to the guy. We have kosher meat. So, you know, the the peak camp for me, even though people write about the horrors of the of displaced people camps or refugee camps, it was wonderful for a child of 10 to 15. Yeah. Especially the years before I couldn't raise my voice. Right. You had to be quiet. Quiet, right? If I raised my voice, they had to. The, my mom or, or somebody would put a a rat in my mouth, so I wouldn't be, you know, uh, making any noise. I had to keep it all in. Constantly trying to survive and hide. Yes, hide and survive. Hey, Josh, I want to go back to the question of dreaming. Do you still have dreams of the camps? And if you do, what are the dreams typically like? The dreams 
were not unpleasant. They're not unpleasant dreams. Okay. When I have the running before the DP camp are unpleasant. Like I run and run and run in a dream and I don't get anywhere. Oh. And I wake up yelling. No. Oh. Uh, but DP camps are pleasant. Yes. Yeah. So it was an awakening for you in the DP camps. What type of awakenings, if any, did you have when you became an American citizen? Well, that was really something else. Uh, you know, I was delighted. Mm. When I got that citizen paper and I write about it in the book, you know, I dressed up for the event and I went down to meet with a judge and the judge asked me some basic questions. And he said, well, you know more than many of the other Americans. Here you are. You're an American citizen. <laughs> so After true. After for five years and going through a background check. My mother immigrated to the United States, and she told me, she told me, I think I know more about American history than Americans. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's interesting. The happiest day for my mother, especially my mother, was when she became an American citizen. Now, she couldn't write or read well English, so my brother would read the pamphlet and she would write it out in Yiddish, mm. transliterate. Like, in America, there is three branches of government. So she would write it out in Yiddish. And then she would memorize that. Oh. And then when she took the test, they gave her an oral test. Thank God they didn't have the computers to give you. But you meet and somebody asks you questions. And she knew the questions because she had transliterated the answers and the material from English into Yiddish, and this is how she memorized it when she went to the to court, she knew the answers. Hmm. You lived two lives in the book. Uh, you know, you were Jewish in the home, but outside you were passing and blending. When were you able to be a Jewish man all the time? When I went to Yeshiva University. Ah, college. High school, actually. Surrounded by others. I was surrounded by others and felt very comfortable. In Phoenix, many times I tried to pass in the outside non-Jew. Mm. Uh, it's interesting, in the house we spoke Yiddish. First year when I was in Phoenix, I felt very uncomfortable when, hey, you're becoming my therapist now, you know that. <laughs> yeah, I was very uncomfortable, like, I would walk with my parents, and we would speak Yiddish among ourselves. Mm. And I didn't want to do that. Oh. You know, I felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Because in the 50s, to be a Jew, it was, it was not very uh, acceptable, especially in a place like Phoenix, which was really not too many Jews at the time. Today, it's a, a metropolitan Jewish community. But those days, it was not. So it actually, when I first came to high school, and I write about it, my journey meeting black people, and I'm a white man, and all of the experiences, uh, I began to feel really who I am as a Jew and as an American, and live in both worlds. Can we talk about that a little more? Because there's a moment in the book you write about getting on the bus to go to school, to New York. Right. And you realize for the first time that you're white. Can you share that story? Sure. Now, 
I met some people of color. Those days, they were referred to as Negroes in the DP camp. The days were mainly people driving buses or jeeps in the armed forces. Mm. I saw people of color in Phoenix when I came, but I've never realized uh, that sitting on a bus, a, a person of color and a person of white uh, is so segregated, separated. This is 1951. And my experiences was, wow, this is America. And that even even then, I started to feel even more ashamed that I'm Jewish. Mm. Because I was afraid people will know that I'm Jewish and I'll be treated like the black people are treated. Mm. They cannot blend in, but I blended in. And, you know, I write in the book that I found a magazine called Jet magazine. It was very simple for me to read, but one of the white guys saw it and he pulled it out and said, hey, you're a white guy. You're not black. Hmm. Yeah, that was an interesting moment in the book. It was. It's a powerful moment. For me, it was. Yeah. So switching gears just a little bit, you were so young when your family left your home and traveled so far what advice would you give to children who are migrating alone to the U.S. southern border? My gosh, that's a tough question. Mm. I don't know. I honestly do not know whether somebody who is uh, left behind, and I see the image of this young child that uh, was in the news where he was in a group and they leave him and uh, alone, and now he's all alone. Yeah. And I just wonder if whether a child like that would have, even under the worst conditions, or whatever country his, his child was from, whether he would have been better off being with a loving family than to be dropped off near a border or thrown over a fence. I know people did it during the Holocaust, and I don't know yeah. what is better. I don't have the answer. But I, I was very lucky. We survived as a family unit. But I don't know the people who took in Germany children and put them on the train and sent them to England. Uh, you know, they did survive. But what kind of life did they have mm. that haunted them? Mm. Yes, and your mother says that you were going to stay together as a family, and if you died, you died together. Right, because she originally, when they went into hiding uh, or the partisans, they put us with a Gentile family. And But then she said, no, if we die, we'll all die as a unit, because I cannot see my children suffer. Mm-hmm. You know, with that said, just thinking about um, migration and immigration and people being refugees, uh, I mean, it's complicated reasons, but usually it's because there's violence uh, that people are fleeing. So do you see any parallels between what is happening in South America with migrants coming to the U.S. and what happened to your family? There There are definitely Definitely, definitely parallel, uh, two parallel trains. But it's hard. It's a very hard, 
very, very hard question to answer. Yes. There are definite parallels. People try to come to the country. Uh, there's no, there's no better country in the world than the United States. The opportunities I could have never had, and that's one of the reasons that even when Israel became a state, and people started to emigrate to Israel, and my parents' decision was. I and my brother would have more opportunities in the United States. And we certainly had the opportunities. And it's good that we can give back to the country. I think every immigrant, whether they came in legally or illegally, uh, are always giving back to the country that they adopt as their own. Mm. So it's our parallels, but there are also systems, I believe, of immigrating. And I'm, I'm reading this fascinating book that came out last summer. It's called The Last Million. Mm. It's about the refugees after the Second World War, my era, so to speak, mm. and all the politics that was going on, on immigration to Palestine and the United States. It's fascinating reading uh, that everybody didn't want to mention. You know, the United States was afraid, and the people who actually were the most hospitable were people of the countries in South America. Mm. Argentina, Colombia, was much easier to immigrate after the war than the United States. It sounded very difficult. You had to, Your family had to wait a long time. A long time. A long time. And then short notice when the, when the train or the ship arrived. Right. Jump on it. <laughs> you can always have NWPB in your pocket by downloading our free mobile app. Just search for NWPB wherever you get your apps. You can listen to us anywhere. You share your story with students and in juvenile detention, and there was one person named Jordan that you had an impact on. Do you remember that? Of course I remember Jordan. <laughs> I met Jordan in the Kitsap uh, uh, Detention Center. Well, as I was reading up on you and saw some uh, YouTube videos about excerpts and interviews you've done with various places— what I was struck with with this particular story is he was in a uh, juvenile detention. You gave a presentation. That is correct. And I talked to Jordan he, uh, afterwards, and he told me his story that he was abused as a child. He was on many, many uh, foster homes, and he ended up in jail. And I always tell the kids, after I talk to them, uh, the following year, and I come back and I say, how many of you have I met here before? And if a child raises their hand and they said, I met you last year, I said, well, you have not learned the lesson. I asked them to leave the room. I said, I'll let you stay in the room on one condition, that if you listen to me and you never come back again, then I made an impact. Uh -huh. But if you come back again, I don't want to see you here. So when I leave the story with each time, when I talk to them, I say, I'll come back next year. 
but I hope none of you are going to be listening to me here. If you see an advertisement that I speak somewhere else, welcome, introduce to me. But if I see you behind bars, I don't want to see you behind bars. Mm. That's the message I leave them. And you tell them your story. Right. And what did Jordan take away from your story? That there's hope. Hmm. The life could turn around. And Jordan turned around his life. Hmm. I got Jordan a computer. He learned how to use a computer. So, you know, there are other people that hope that my story makes an impact. I didn't write this to, to get glory out of this book. I wrote it that people could learn from the very, very deep depth. One person could lift himself up and do something for himself, the family, and society. Yeah. I mean, you know your story touches people, but there is an example of the whole purpose of this. Yeah. Is you educated someone and helped them have a better life. Yeah, I write in the book, about another story would happened in the prison in Seattle where about a 15, 6-year-old child was in prison for murder one. Mm. And he asked me, if you were to meet Hitler today, would you kill him? Mm. What would you do? Something like that. I'm paraphrasing it. And I said, well, I, I am angry at Hitler. There's no question about it. But by going ahead and killing, what will I solve? I'm going to end up in jail. Is there any other way of handling that matter? And he says, you know, I killed a person, and that's why I'm here. And if I would have heard basically your story before, maybe this wouldn't have happened to me. Oh. I thought that was such a powerful moment. Yeah. That's why you have to keep telling your story. And I really appreciate it. It's... A good reminder when we hear other people's stories and what they've been through, because then we can reflect on ourselves and know that we have strength within as well. Yeah? Yeah. Your advice to young people is to help the individual and not to be silent when they see something wrong. That is correct. So I'm wondering... What are your thoughts then on Black Lives Matter when people are speaking up more about seeing violence against minorities and and black folk? Well, I feel that, you know, there is, I have to go back to the scripture, so to speak. Mm. There is a statement, I'm trying to think it without looking up the exact terminology. One cannot stand by on the shedding blood of another person. You know, if you see something, you see you got to you got to take a stand. You got to say something, and if you don't, not only are you not helping the individual in trouble, but people see you as a standby and do nothing. They'll do nothing. But if you see something and you say something and you do something, people will use you as their leader and follow your example. So you can be a leader of helping, or you can be a leader of being quiet. And if you're quiet, the other people are quiet. And nothing's happening, no change will happen. But if you are doing something, whether it's verbal or physically, doing something, other people will follow You know uh, your, your direction. Yeah. 
And then you've been asked before, why do you do these talks? And you often quote Ecclesiastes. Can you tell us um, more about that? Well, you know, I quote Ecclesiastes, and I quote it in the book, I think in the last chapter, uh, where I write, La Kolzman, Esla Hashof, Esla Daber. There's a time for everything, a time to be silent and a time to speak. And I was silent all of those years. I didn't speak about it. But now as the generation disappears and the new generation, I'm probably one of the last cohort that is still alive and is able to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before me, I saw other people speaking. There were people my parents' age, who could go up and speak from their experiences in the death camps and in the concentration camps. I was silent at the time because other people spoke about it. Uh, But now there are very few left, and every one of us must speak up right now because soon there will be nobody else to speak. Mm. And I often finish my presentations, especially in this younger people, with all the people, you know, adults, I don't use it, but I often quote a Pesta Mark Dimalar. Uh, he writes in his diary as he was led into the Dachau concentration camp, and I'm quoting now from the notes. First, they came from the mentally ill, and I said nothing. Then they came for the Jews, and I said nothing. Then they came for the communists, and I said nothing. Finally, they came for me, and there was no one left to say anything. So that's a, these are powerful words about social action and doing something, if you can. Yeah, very powerful words. It's a good quote. Well, Josh, I'm so glad that we did connect and that I got a chance to read your book. I learned many things, one of which is just how strong the endurance of the human spirit is. And I particularly was gravitated toward your parents because they were working so hard to keep you all together. Yes. And that is incredible. And putting themselves out there to come to a foreign country and start anew to give you and your brother a chance. Yeah. Uh, They sacrificed a lot. And my brother sacrificed a lot by letting me go to New York. And he missed out on the Jewish education and the Jewish life that I was able to live in New York. Oh, because he stayed in Phoenix. He stayed in Phoenix because he had to help my parents. I see. They never drove. You know, uh, he was their eyes and mouth. As as a lot of uh, first-generation immigrant children do for their parents, they interpret they sign the paperwork correct yeah well before you go before we go josh i just have a question about yeah is it an immigrant thing to really push for education yes why do you think that is well because through education the world is open to you Mm. and you can enter areas uh, especially in the jewish and in the Asian communities, it's it's engraved in us the importance of education. Yeah, and also the sacrifice. It sounds like. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
uh, the Asians are the old Jews of yesteryear. Oh, I don't think I've ever heard that. In the Korean culture, there's a thing called Han, which is like deep ancestral regret, and you know, there's a lot of oppression because, well, Korea has always been invaded by different people and whatnot, but a lot of that long-standing generational missing people or being moved around or being taken over by somebody, I always felt had um, a relationship with what happens to the Jewish people in, in ancient history and recent history. Yes, I think so. Yeah. You know, we have this concept, I don't write it in the book at all, of Tikkun Olam to improve the world. Mm. So when we pass on, uh, if we help one person to live better or to do something good, is that we help the whole world. And each one of us has to leave a legacy, not in money, but family and values. That's the important thing, the values that you leave, uh, the ethical values that one leaves and is able to impart that on other people. You know, there's a, in the Talmud, again, I'm stepping out from my role as a survivor or remnant to a role of a teacher in the Talmud, it says the following. Again, I'm paraphrasing it. The whole world is made up in a scale 50-50. There are 50 people that are very producing, and there are 50 people who are takers. Take away everything that you do. Look at yourself in a scale. There are 50-50. If you do one thing right, you go now on the scale. The scale is now 51 to 49. You made the, the whole thing different than before. If you decide to step on the other side, you are there now 51% of evil and 49% of goodness. Hmm. So if each person can take himself and put himself in a position to say, yes, I can make a difference. By me stepping over that scale, it's now 49 to 51%. Yeah, that's good teaching. That's a good way to end, Josh. <laughs> hey, great. Thank you, Josh. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye. Bye. That's Josh Gortler living in Seattle. His book is Among the Remnants, Josh Gortler's Journey. So, Josh, how do you know Gigi? I've known Gigi for 100 years. <laughs> I'll tell her that. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, Gigi. I really like Gigi. I thought of why. Yeah. I've got to know each other when they moved into the Seward Park neighborhood. Oh, I see. And we belong to the same synagogue. Ah, good, good. I love that sense of humor. Now, earlier I mentioned that Northwest Public Broadcasting's classical music host Gigi Yellen helped with Among the Remnants. Gigi is Jewish and chatted with me about the book, her own experiences, and why some folk feel uncomfortable saying Jew. Gigi, 
I have learned a lot from you about the Jewish culture, and I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you grew up. Well, yeah, I um, I grew up as a Jew, the daughter of a fellow who went to war in World War II to fight for the United States of America. He was the son of European Jewish immigrants who came to this country in uh, the 1910s, and so was my mother. So I am the granddaughter of European Jewish immigrants. As a Jew, um, I've grown up knowing some things and being taught that there's always more to learn. My education was uh, general, and one of the most prominent features, unfortunately, for a kid growing up in my generation of American Jewish life was the never again message. The Holocaust happened never again. And I think that uh, that message goes really deep. It goes as deep as identifying as a Jew and realizing that the word Jew itself is awkward for a lot of people who didn't grow up identifying as such. I've actually talked to colleagues who can't even say the word without feeling that they're saying a bad word. Yes, why do you think that is? I have to say, I have to tell myself that it's just a description and there's nothing wrong with me saying, you're a Jew. Yes, that's true. The word is uh, an English version of the name Judah, uh, who was one of the biblical ancestors of this people. And it was also the name of a part of the land, which was the land that, um, according to historical uh, documents and so forth, was the home of Jews. And then there were all kinds of historical things that happened involving Romans and, and exiles and stuff. But the word Jew stuck, and that's who we are. We're Yehudim, we're Yidden, we're all those things that if you identify as a Jew, it's, that's who you are. So just every time I hear somebody say Jewish people, it sounds like a euphemism to me. And I'm thinking, you don't have to call me a Jewish person. You can just call me a Jew because I am. And if that to you is a negative epithet, then it's your problem. Gigi, as I'm thinking about why is there that hesitancy, most of, I would say, your coworkers don't have any um, malice in their heart about you or saying the word Jew. It's that maybe our epigenomics or the culture around us and what has happened made things so scary and frightening that you know, saying and calling out a person as Jewish is almost uncovering them for the world to see and harass? Yes, which makes this actually a little bit of a scary coming out for me, talking about this on the radio. And I think part of what moves me about Josh's story is that Josh doesn't have that issue because he's an immigrant. He's he's the guy who carries the tradition kind of firsthand. And his experience of having been displaced during a war is not all that different from so many other different kinds of people around the planet who've been displaced, who've been displaced because somebody hated somebody and didn't want them there. The story in his life about how his parents tried to go back home to their village, their town in Poland, 
and their neighbors didn't want them anymore. That's not an uncommon story. They were angry. What are you doing here? Right. They thought they were gone for good, and they didn't care how they were gone. They didn't care if they were, if they'd just moved or if they were dead. They just had their stuff. They had their house. And so Josh's family, being very resourceful, figured out how to get out of there alive and make a new life. But the transition between getting out of there and making a new life involved displaced person camps. And that was one of the things that he wanted to do in the book was talk about how he, as a successful adult professional, was formed by his experience in the displaced persons camps where he was as an adolescent. So, Gigi, how did you get involved with writing the foreword of the book, and and how did you meet Josh? I wrote the foreword of the book because I was actually involved as the the person who listened to him, I recorded his stories, and I spent three years recording, transcribing, and then putting his stories into a readable front-to-back journey that he wanted. Um, so I knew Josh by reputation first, and uh, he was connected with everybody in town that I could see. And then when he retired... He started doing these talks as a one of several survivors for the the uh, what was called at the time the Washington State Holocaust Education um, Center. It's now called the Holocaust Center for Humanity, based in Seattle. And as we talked, uh, oh, so um, how I got the gig to work with Josh on his memoir was basically we had a mutual friend who was doing a book talk. And um, we were both at her book talk, and Josh's wife knew me as a radio person and suggested to him that if he was going to do a memoir, maybe he should have me work with him because I was a writer and all kinds of good stuff. And it was a very inspiring experience to hear every day we would talk. And we talked for three years on and off, sometimes like, Three times a week, we would have these sessions, and something would unfold, and then I would go back and ask details and try to make it a book full of personal color as much as I could. And I also wanted to make sure that in his book, the sound of Josh is understandable to somebody who doesn't come from any kind of Jewish background. I did my best to transliterate words so that the sound of them could come out and then offer not just translations, but also a little cultural context. I found that that so helpful while reading the book. Good. It it really allowed me, because every time a word would come up, I'd you know, before I even thought, well, how do you say this or what does it mean? At the very bottom, you gave great description and uh, it put me more in a sense of place and time and in his culture, so uh, which I find as an American very important because I feel as if that gets stripped away a lot. And to dive into that book about Josh with those annotations and, you know, little asterisks was deeper. Well, that was really important to me to do. And I didn't want a chapter of notes in the back of the book where you would have to flip back and forth because I knew that... A reader like yourself, who doesn't have the background, 
would have the question right then, and they would want to know right then, what is that? What does that mean? How is it used? What was your takeaway as a Jew from Josh's story, and what do you hope readers take away from it? Well, my takeaway was that one long life is many stories, and it's helpful as a younger person to look at how one successful older person can take struggles that they went through and turn them into real good for not just themselves, but their community and beyond. And um, what was, you had a, a second. What do you hope readers take away from Josh's book? Ah, well, first of all, I hope readers will understand that the word diversity includes people like Josh and people like me. I, as I say, this is kind of like a, a coming out. I don't talk about my Jewish heritage much on the air. In fact, I, I really don't. And I think um, the whole American project of learning about and respecting and discovering the newness in the cultures that we bring together that's what I hope readers will take away, that, oh, there's this too. This culture too exists, and these are the essential values, and these are how they're lived in the best way. And I think that's what Josh's story shows, is the best human-supporting values of the tradition that he represents, how those can teach other people, and how those can be used to add to the cultural mix of this region. Thanks for listening to Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramello.